Great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome this evening Christopher Caldwell, uh, who is speaking in the LSE European Institute's Future of Europe public lecture series, uh, and this is in partnership with the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, now, Christopher Caldwell, as many will probably know, is a regular columnist for the Financial Times. Uh, he's a senior editor of the Weekly Standard, uh, which is a, a lively and iconoclastic uh, publication of, of the thoughtful political right. And he also writes inter alia for New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, many other publications. Now, in our world of uh, commentary and blogging uh, overload, um, it's always seemed to me that um, Christopher Caldwell is one thinker really worth making, finding the time, the time for. Um, and those who read his columns, particularly in the Saturday FT, uh, will know how original and readable are his, uh, his takes are on current uh, policy issues and current uh, topical themes, and just how widely he casts his net. Uh, someone who can always be read, as they say, for pleasure and profit. And pursuing that uh, rather 18th century turn of phrase um, brings us to uh, Christopher's latest book uh, and its title, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, which I hardly need to tell an LSE audience, is of course uh, a play uh, on Edmund Burke's magisterial Re reflections on the revolution in France. Now, Christopher's book, which some of you may have seen uh, sort of trailed or extracts from recently in either Prospect Magazine or in the Sunday Times, um, does not address, obviously, an event which is so immediately transformational as the French Revolution. Uh, rather, it considers the implications of a, of a longer-term social process which we are seeing. Um, but perhaps like Edmund Burke, it sounds a warning of what follows or what could follow if social and political change do not work with the grain of society. And in his book, which is subtitled, as you've probably seen, I'm not sure how much detail there is here, or maybe the events leaflet, but anyway, the subtitle of the book is Immigration, Islam, and the West. And in it, Christopher asks some searching questions about identity, about multiculturalism, about social cohesion, about uh, solidarity. So we very much look forward to what he's going to say. Um, and as per our usual format, we will leave a decent amount of time uh, for questions uh, from the floor. I'm happy to say to those of you who haven't uh, noticed, seen it, that um, Christopher's book, which has just published in the last two or three days, uh, is uh, outside and on sale, and he's willing to uh, sign anyone who wishes to purchase it immediately after um, uh, this session, which I think will be around about quarter to eight, ten to eight uh, or so. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Christopher Portland. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're, you're, you're very nice to, to come, and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. It's, uh, I hope everyone can hear me. Uh, tonight, um, uh, tonight I, I have a book out, uh, um, as you've just heard. Uh, tonight, I'd like to... Um, it, it's, it's, it's rather too wide-ranging a book to, uh, to, to tell you about all in one night, so I'd, I'd like to talk about a, a small corner of it, which I, I would say would be the, the hidden costs of, of immigration. And um, before I start, I'd like to talk to you, though, about a little problem that I'm having in talking about this book in general. Uh, what first drew me to immigration when I started writing about it in the United States about two decades ago 
was its complexity. Uh, you know, immigration is about, it's about the economy and cultures and languages and literatures and how people form families and, and, and morals. And when immigrants come from a different culture, which they don't always, but often do, uh, and, and still more from a different faith, uh, immigration is about conflict, uh, which makes it a very good journalistic story. Uh, and immigration is about conflict in the best of, of circumstances. Now, I believe, uh, and I have believed for about the last 20 years, that Europe's immigration and integration issues are much more complex than the ones we face uh, in the United States um, because they involve many nations and they're much more conflictual, um, largely because they involve Islam. Um, and although my uh, book has a, uh, a very simple theme, which is that you cannot have the same Europe with different people, uh, it has a lot of arguments and a lot of stories in it, and I hope that uh, they do justice to the complexity of the, of the European issue. Um, the problem is that there's a limit to how much complexity one can get across to someone who hasn't read the book. I mean, I like to think of this book as a sort of uh, uh, patient Tocquevillian dissection of the state of immigration in Europe, and particularly Muslim immigration, at a moment when it's first becoming clear that Europe is turning into something else. But the problem is that people who are interested in immigration, or people who like to talk about it, tend to be Manichaean. Um, so I suspect that a lot of readers and reviewers and interviewers and people who come to lectures like these, um, because this is the way it was with most of the people I interviewed too. M most people want to just get to the bottom line. They want to know, is this a love book or is this a doom book, you know? Is this like, uh, you know, is this um, let's, let's love one another or is this like the shadow of the sword over Europe? And um, if, if your book doesn't fit into one of those categories, and, and I, I don't believe mine does, people can be kind of brought up short. So before I get rolling, I'd like to give you a sort of a, a rough idea of what the book is about and where it goes. The book asks whether, uh, what kind of Europe is resulting from decades of mass immigration and uh, whether Europeans uh, find it acceptable. Uh, this is not an idealistic book. It's not about the struggles of immigrants and it's not about social justice and it certainly doesn't try to uh, lecture Europeans of any persuasion about what kind of society they, uh, they should try to create under conditions of globalization. Uh, it's written from a uh, critical distance, and I think I, I hope that that's the best thing that that an American can bring to this subject. Um, another thing that I might be able to bring as an American is a perspective looking at uh, is a sort of pan-European perspective. Uh, many Europeans blame their problems with integration on really uh, parochial factors within their individual countries. So if only so-and-so hadn't been so lenient with asylum applications when he was home secretary, we wouldn't have this problem. Or um, if um, Jürgen Rutgers hadn't said those terrible things about uh, Indians when, when, when he was the minister president, well then we'd have a much better relationship with our immigrants. Um, or if only our colonies had been there and not here, or if only we hadn't um, uh, joined the Iraq War Coalition, or if we had, or, uh, and so on. The, the, the impression that is left is that immigration, the, the immigration problem uh, in Europe is a diverse 
phenomenon. Um, and I think that's false. I, I, I don't think Europe's immigration situation is particularly diverse. Even if the immigrants and the uh, receiving countries that make it up are quite diverse. Uh, if you leave aside the economic crisis that began in 2008, uh, running a multicultural society is the main problem facing, uh, or you could say the main challenge, if you prefer, facing every country in Western Europe. And if, if you understand how immigration, Islam, and native European culture interact in any Western Euro European country, you can get, if not an exact prediction, you can have a rough and ready idea of how they'll react in any, uh, how they'll interact in any, any, any other European country. Um, no matter what its uh, former national character, no matter whether it conquered an empire, no matter what its role in World War II, no matter what its role in New York, uh, New York, New York, Iraq, <laughs> sorry, no matter what, the, and no matter what the provenance of its uh, uh, Muslim immigrants. Now, uh, all, all these European countries have the same shrinking native populations. All countries make the same diagnoses of their immigrant challenges, and they put forward the same economic and uh, social policies, which are generally, they generally involve favoring more skilled immigration over uh, unskilled immigration. I mean, there are, there, you'll always run across interesting quirks. I mean, um, some favorites of mine are that, you know, in Sweden, which um, uh, has a large number of Iraqi Kurds among its population, you have a situation where the, the Muslim immigrants of Sweden are, are almost certainly more pro-American than the larger um, society, which is not the, not the case in all, in all European countries. In, um, in Britain, um, uh, unlike in, I think in most of Europe, uh, the, the most divisive issues between immigrants and natives involve gender relations. I would say that in Britain, they, they involve um, foreign policy. So I, I, and I try to do uh, justice to these particular, particularities, but, but in, in the broad outlines, the immigra immigration and integration problems in, in Western countries are, are largely the same. My book uh, is a kind of a triptych. Um, the first part gives a bit of history and describes the economic, uh, political, and cultural situation that made mass immigration possible for the first time in European history. I believe it was a combination of remorse over World War II combined with um, a de desire to project a tolerant face to the world in the context of the Cold War that made Europeans more reluctant than they would historically have been to uh, express their misgivings over um, large-scale immigration. Uh, there are some people who say that uh, Europe has always been a continent of uh, immigrants, but this is strikes me as counter-historical. Uh, just in, in uh, there, are, there are issues of scale here, and um, it, it, it is sort of a mystery to me why so many Europeans feel the need, whatever they think about the present wave of Im immigration, why so many Europeans feel the need to deny that, that it's actually, it's quite a new phenomenon for Europe. Um, the first, so the first section of this book ends by asking whether the dominant European attitude towards um, towards immigration is one of tolerance, uh, as Europeans have flattered themselves, or whether it's one of fear and uh, or maybe conformism. Second part of the book um, describes, um, pardon me if I pour a glass of water, uh, describes the way immigrant communities have formed and how they've interacted to other communities already in Europe. 
Uh, I discuss um, segregation, both uh, the kind that results sometimes from government policy, as in Sweden, um, and the kind uh, that results from the preferences of uh, newcomers, um, uh, such as the kind that's described in the amazing sociological work of the German sociologist uh, Ralph Jalan, um, uh, which he calls ethnic colonies. The, the, the last part of this book, which is about uh, how Europe is reacting, uh, 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 which is about how Europe is reacting politically to this changed landscape, is where I discuss um, this idea, which is that, to repeat, you cannot have the same Europe with different people. Um, this is naturally where religion comes up. And religion is a place where I think my book risks being badly misunderstood. Um, now, since religion, and particularly Islam, uh, is important in my book, and since I'm not going to talk about it much um, tonight in what follows, I would just like to discuss briefly, so you know, how I deal with Islam here. Uh, the one thing I've tried to do, as I think I do in all my journalism, is to leave religious doctrines out of, um, out of this book. Um, I'm not a Muslim, I don't read Arabic, and the one thing that has made me very comfortable and strikes me as very ridiculous is when politicians or commentators try to lecture uh, not just Muslims but people of any faith on what their faith tells them to believe. Um, so you'll, that is nowhere in my book. But religion as a social phenomenon is, strikes me as massively important. Uh, I think most European writers and commentators tend to think of religion as a strong opinion irrationally held, and I disagree with this. I think religion has a major role in shaping public values, and that it ought to. So the fact that, for instance, um, in Amsterdam, believing Muslims outnumber believing Catholics and outnumber all believing Protestant faiths combined that strikes me as really consequential. Um, it means that uh, a lot of the bedrock thinking about um, the good life, about the ultimate goals of society, about the me metaphysics and meaning of life, a lot of the best and most serious thinking on that is being done by Muslims. Clashes over whether you ought to be able to wear a veil in school or whether you can publish cartoons of Mohammed they matter a great deal. They're, the, they're, they're, just the, uh, they're just what you can see on the surface of a lot of very serious thinking about uh, what, how we ought to lead our lives and how society ought to be uh, ordered. Something that I maybe don't say precisely, and I might put a little bit harshly now, is that the dominant European belief system, uh, whether you call it multiculturalism, the tolerant society, or, or secularism, it may not be a worldview so much as a, a placeholder where a worldview ought to be. Um, the, the American Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, once said about Britain uh, uh, that it has lost an empire but has not found a role. I'm sure you've heard that 800 gazillion times, and I, too, actually think that's one of those overrated lame quotes that doesn't say as much as people think it does. But I'd like to use it as a template for something I think is going on in Europe now, which is that I think that Europe has lost a belief system and has not really found a substitute. Uh, 
So, in that situation, in that situation where there is no real belief system in Europe, to worry that Islam will play an over-large role in shaping the belief system of the Europe to come does not strike me as being anti-Muslim. I think it's no insult to Muslims to say that they are taking the serious things of life more seriously than most Christians and and most of their secular fellow citizens. Um, I think Tariq Ramadan believes this. I think the late Pim Fortown believed this. And um, despite the fact that they might be considered uh, uh, ideological opposites, I think that their analyses of the role of religion in European life are pretty much identical. Although uh, Ramadan believes uh, religion is a good thing and, and Fortown believed it's a bad thing. Or you could say that Ramadan believes it's a real thing and Fortown believes it's a false thing. But, um, but I believe their, their visions are similar. Um, in a way, you can say that the issue is with Islam is not that it offers Europe little, but that it offers it a great deal. And since we're in London, since we're in London, I, I, thought, I thought I would mention a passage in the book that I uh, took from a speech from um, Thomas Carlyle. It's one of the, the speeches that were compiled into his book um, on heroes and hero worship. In, in May of 1840, Carlyle gave a lecture on Muhammad. And in the middle of this lecture, it was a lecture on Muhammad, which was also an attack on utilitarianism. And, in, um, and I'm sorry to attack utilitarianism at LSE, but, uh, but uh, in the middle of the lecture, John Stuart Mill leapt up from his seat and screamed at him. And Carlyle's argument was that unlike modern utilitarian uh, Europeans, Muhammad had grasped the deadly earnest of all that we do on earth and that he thus taught a lesson that men forget at their peril. This earnest, Carlyle said, and here I'll read, is the first of all truths. It is venerable under all embodiments. What is the chief end of man here below? Muhammad has answered this question in a way that might put some of us to shame. He does not, like a Bentham, a Paley, take right and wrong and calculate profit and loss ultimate pleasure of the one and of the other, and summing it all up by addition and subtraction into a net result, ask you whether on the whole the right does not preponderate considerably. Benthamite utility, virtue by profit and loss, reducing this God's world to a dead, brute steam engine, the infinite celestial soul of man to a kind of hay balance for waiting hay and thistles on, pleasures and pains on. If you ask me which gives Muhammad or they, the beggarlier and falser view of man and his destinies in the universe, I will answer, it is not Muhammad. Um, anyway, that strikes me as a, a, a mid-19th century version of, of some of the problems we're, uh, we're going through now. Now, a guy who interviewed me on the radio yesterday um, described the book uh, by saying, uh, here comes Chris Caldwell with the case against immigration. Um, I, I can see some things that, that, that might lead him to say so, but I, I absolutely reject that, uh, that description. Um, I, again, as I say, one of the last things I want to do as an American coming to Europe is to tell uh, people uh, 
how to run their own um, sovereign nations. Uh, my uh, book does not make a case against uh, immigration. But it is fair to say that it dwells on um, hidden costs of immigration, and, and I'll devote the rest of my time to that. Since, because since some of these, um, um, uh, some of the most provocative maybe and easily misunderstood uh, statements in the book can concern those hidden costs. Now, there's an obvious economic way to look at the hidden costs of immigration. The Oxford demographer David Coleman has urged that when we tally up the economic impact of immigration, that we should also consider, quote, the total costs of the integration process and of the associated immigration and race relations businesses, the costs of meeting special education, health, and housing needs of immigrants, the net effects upon the education of ordinary children in immigrant areas, the permanent need to regenerate urban areas of immigrant settlement instead of demolishing them, issues of crime and public order, and the multiplier effect on future immigration. Now, there are things that people might object to in that, uh, like uh, the, the passage on the education of ordinary children, but, uh, but, but there's something in here that I think is really intelligent, and, and that is, um, uh, in fact, I think Coleman's work is generally in, uh, quite intelligent, and that, and that is the, the multiplier effect on, on future immigration. Um, because that, that brings up a, um, a hidden cost that Europeans have never really come to terms with. And that is, a commitment to mass immigration means a commitment to permanent mass Im immigration. And um, this is the, the fact that people have not understood this is part of the uh, explanation for why uh, immigration has continued steadily far above the levels at which um, public uh, opinion would seem to wish, and uh, it explains why the market always wants more, uh, uh, the economy wants more immigrants than, than, than politics will deliver. Um, and and this, is, this is what I mean by the revolution in Europe. I want to show you this push towards constant expansion or, or constant maintenance of immigration in two ways. First, first economically. Um, Economically, accounts of the benefits of immigration uh, often describe the jobs that first-generation immigrants take as the jobs that no European wants. Um, now, of course, what is really meant is the jobs that no European wants to do at a particular wage, and that has consequences. Recently, uh, an immigration specialist named Philip Martin of the University of California, Davis, drew parallels between today's migrations and the movement of uh, would-be settlers to North America in the 18th century. Now, back then, um, migrants paid the cost of their own resettlement through an indenture. That is, they promised a certain number of years of labor to the uh, landowner who fronted their voyage. You could say that perhaps today's immigrants pay an updated kind of indenture in the form of rights living as they often do in an ambiguous legal status that condemns them only to the lowest jobs. If there really are jobs that Europeans won't do at any, pray, any, any price, then this indenture is a big part of what natives believe they are getting out of immigration. Now, whether or not this indenture is fair depends on the context in which you view it. On the one hand, 
the arrangement is corrosive of rights, of the idea of rights, because it, take, it creates two tiers of rights in the destination country. Trade unions have always said this. On the other hand, the supposed victims, the, 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 the immigrants, are unlikely to complain uh, because they are doing better than they would have done in their native countries. But there's a hitch, and that is that the benefits of this indenture, if we can call it that, accrue to immigrants' new countries only as long as immigrants are illegal, illegal or marginal or transitional. And immigrants don't, and we think they shouldn't, stay that way forever. As soon as they are legally and socially assimilated in the way that society professes and perhaps pretends to want, then they acquire all sorts of rights and expectations. They become Europeans who, by definitions, will no longer do the jobs that no European wants. So the moment immigration is successful socially, the main reason society used to justify it economically disappears uh, 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 along with the economic need. So at that point, uh, to ensure that the jobs nobody wants gets done, society has to get more immigrants. Um, if you were really if you were, uh, you were, you were uh, a left-leaning economist, you would say that it needs to recruit a, a, a new reserve army of foreign-born grunt workers. Um, the only alternative to that would be to maintain the precariousness of immigrants' legal status into the next generation by maintaining birthright citizenship, which, which does not sound much better. It sounds like a, a, a modern-day type of um, feudalism. But either way, the gains from immigration all must be redeemed again in the next generation. That is, they seem to be borrowed and not permanently earned. Uh, there's a contradiction. The faster and more thoroughly immigrants adapt to your society, the more immigrants you need. So um, a momentum develops. Now, there's another way to look at this sort of momentum towards um, permanent immigration. Um, I think that uh, that was the economic logic, but I think that the economic logic for mass immigration, whether it's grown stronger or weaker over the years, has certainly grown much less prominent in the defenses of immigration made by, by politicians. Today, I think immigration and integration and multiculturalism are more commonly defended uh, in terms of um, diversity. Um, but at the heart of the ideology of diversity, which is supposed to um, enrich and strengthen nations, there is also a kind of illogic. Um, which is, if a diverse population um, enriches and strengthens nations as much as people claim, why would any nation want its immig immigrants to assimilate? Um, that would be drawing down the nation's valuable fund of um, diversity. And uh, so in this respect, you know, Ethiopians are for running Ethiopian restaurants. They're not for moving into sort of mid-level corporate hierarchies. Um, uh, if, if you're going to, to assimilate um, immigrants into the heart of society, then in order to keep the supply of diversity on tap, you again need more immigration. So you have a situation where European leaders are 
defending large-scale immigration in one breath by saying it's going to make their countries different through diversity, and in, in, this, in the next breath saying that it will leave them the same through integration. And um, uh, you, can't, you can't really, um, uh, you can't do both at, at, at the same time. Now, diversity, uh, I would say, in, 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 in its early days, won its most heartfelt ascent at the level of um, consumerism, uh, mostly you know, cuisine and fashion. I talk about this uh, a lot in the book, but it's maybe uh, um, uh, uh, European populations were thrilled by the novelties that uh, that immigration that, that immigra immigration brought, you know, from samba to hashish to to baba ganoush. Um, but from the 1960s on, um, immigration began to change um, things, not just in the marketplace, but in the in the core in uh, core relationships uh, and and um, constitutional structures of society. And um, although I don't have much time, I would like to I, I would like to address that too because it is one of the um, uh, it's one of the perhaps most provocative things I say in um, in the book that one of the prices one of the hidden costs of immigration is that it, it exacts a steep price in um, constitutional rights and freedoms for the people in the um, receiving country. Um, there's an obvious, um, there's a very obvious instance, and it will be obvious here in London, um, uh, and I bring it up because I'm in London, I don't deal with it too much in my book, and that is surveillance. Um, I don't deal with surveillance, I deal with it a bit, uh, but uh, not too much in my book because I don't deal with uh, terrorism or, or counter-terrorism um, outside of one chapter. but. In most Western countries now, um, the surveillance of radical imams and mosques has been stepped up. Um, it's easy, such practices are, are open to criticism um, as being uh, racist or, uh, or prejudiced, um, or uh, as putting young people under surveillance just because they are Muslim. Um, since they are easily uh, criticized as, as racist, a regime of enhanced eavesdropping on everyone may be, for politicians, uh, the path of least constitutional resistance. In countries where immigrant customs are um, uh, uh, considered to, um, uh, to repress women, you have another kind of, um, uh, you have another kind of, of invasion of rights. Um, uh, I, I, I mentioned in, in, in the book the example of, of, of Sweden. Um, in Sweden, you have a large number of East African um, immigrants, uh, which is a place that uh, uh, a place where the um, uh, practice of female circumcision is common. Uh, one point I make in the book is that the only the only European value that Europeans um, put forward, I believe, to immigrants as a real non-negotiable demand, a real deal breaker for whether you can stay in the country or not, is Europeans, uh, European ideas of sexual freedom. Um, and the ideas about sexual freedom and assimilation are, are so tightly bound together 
that Sweden has a cabinet member um, uh, in, in, at the time of my writing, and now it's, the, it's Niamco Sabuni, who's uh, born in Burundi, has a cabinet member who serves as the so-called Minister of Integration and Gender Equality, as if those were just two different words for the, for the same thing. I mention in passing in the course of the book, and I think it's, it's, it's very interesting, that Ms. Sabuni um, suggested at, at, at one point having national um, genital examinations for, um, for young uh, girls in Sweden, uh, nationwide uh, uh, nations of, the, of these girls at a certain age, uh, to, to, to discover whether they had been um, uh, abused in that, in that way. Uh, that strikes me as a as sort of an unthinkable um, uh, intrusion on the, on the lives of Swedes, or one that would have been before the age of immigration. The most, the most uh, uh, maybe thoroughgoing change in the constitutional structure that, that, that results when you have a world of, 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 of diversity or a, uh, when you need to manage diversity when you're running a multicultural society, um, I would say is affirmative action. And um, I would argue that the, the centerpiece of um, Nicolas Sarkozy's um, uh, domestic policy has rested on what he calls, quote, the remarkable experiment undertaken at Sciences Po. And by this he means affirmative action. In, in 2001, the uh, Institute of Political Studies, uh, Sciences Po as, as it's called, um, launched a program that would allow students from what they call priority education zones to bypass its written examination and submit to an oral interview instead. Um, these zones were not randomly chosen. They uh, were all poor areas with heavy immigrant um, populations. And the director uh, of Sciences Po said, uh, well, look, we're not, we are not re recruiting these people because they're poor, Arab, or black, but because they are good. And I, I think this is one of those little white lies that are the mainstay of, of uh, all uh, affirmative action uh, programs, because it, racial diversity was the uh, was clearly the the over overarching goal, and um, the program's defenders have in numerous at numerous times described this as a means of quote integrating unquote Sciences Po. Um, now there have been a lot of lawsuits. These are the, this has run through the courts in France, but whether you like affirmative action or not. Uh, it, it does great damage to, a, to, a, to a, the French idea of citoyenneté, which is based on uh, equality of status that is, that is uh, quite absolute to the point where um, there are certain voluntary associations that France um, doesn't even recognize as, as sort of favoring people over, uh, over others. Um, the introduction of um, affirmative action is a is a, is a major shift in European life. It, the introduction of affirmative action, whether you, means a um, means a revocation of the um, of the right of freedom of association. That is, if you have a business and um, the twenty uh, employees of, of your business um, uh, are all um, are all white. That used to be, well, it's just one of those things that happens. In the United States, 
that's no longer true. Be, uh, it becomes the, governor's, uh, the government's business if all 20 employees of your, your, your business are white. Now, why was, this not, um, why was this not considered a great loss of a constitutional right in the United States? The reason it wasn't is that the United States enacted affirmative action uh, in uh, response to our race problem, a problem of racial segregation that had lasted for about 400 years and over which the most violent war in the history of the world up to that date had been fought and which continued until after World War II with all its lessons. In other words, this was this was an, in the United States, this was perceived as an extreme measure, but as, uh, in constitutional terms, but, but, but passed in response to an extreme emergency in constitutional and human rights terms. In Europe, when you have um, affirmative action, it is tough to see what the parallel um, emergency is that would, would justify the revocation of those rights. Um, in France, in, uh, to stick with the Sarkozy case, there's a lot of talk of colonialism. But colonialism is a problem that um, has receded much further into the, into the past than um, institutionalized racism had in the United States in the 1960s. And I don't see the emergency that is going to create the political will for, um, I should add, that in the United States, there is no widespread support for affirmative action. Whenever it is brought to a referendum, um, it is rejected. Um, it, it has been kept in place largely in states like California through the act actions of courts. So given that it has such a weak hold on American life in response to such a dire emergency, I don't see what the um, emergency is in Europe that is going to make it um, tolerable to populations over the long term. Um, I think that's about enough examples, and I would like to, to conclude now um, by saying that, by telling you what, I th what I'm talking about when I talk about a revolution in Europe or, or not being able to have the same Europe with different people. I believe that Europeans are becoming a society much more on the American model. Um, Europe's difficulty is that I think that you have a much more complicated society to manage than Americans have. When I say you're becoming a society on uh, the American model, what I mean is that Europe is becoming a nation of immigrants. And this sounds like, nation of immigrants sounds like an empty cliché. You know, America is a nation of immigrants. Europeans often say it just to mean that, wow, you know, you can never tell what kind of surname an, an, an American will have. And Americans say it as a kind of boast to mean that, wow, we're somehow uh, either more tolerant or more uh, accepting of uh, difference or more capable of turning foreigners into natives. But I don't think that's what it means at all. I think being a nation of immigrants is being willing to be changed by foreigners. Um, when you say that America is a nation of immigrants, you say that it is a nation that has consented to a permanent demographic revolution. And this is the revolution in Europe that I'm talking about. The problem that the book identifies 
is that Europeans have wound up in this revolution without really explicitly consenting to it the way Americans have. I mean, I, uh, Europeans are not ignorant of the virtues, uh, virtues of the United States' melting pot, and, uh, but they've always considered American-style immigration a kind of Faustian bargain. And uh, all of the things that, uh, that Europeans have traditionally admired uh, at a distance about the United States, uh, the dynamism, the energy, the unpredictability, the lack of hang-ups, Europe is going to get those. But I think it's also going to get all of the things that Europe has traditionally disliked about the United States. The impermanence, um, the people who are totally indifferent to what their grandparents did and equally indifferent to whether their grandchildren's way of life will be determined by themselves or by someone else. And Americans' tendency in the absence of such tradition to turn to things like religion. Europe is going to get that too. And, 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 and that's what I mean when I say that you cannot have the same Europe with uh, different people. Thank you very much. Well, Christopher, thank you for some very thoughtful and stimulating um, um, ideas um, and uh, commentary. Um, and, um, I hope in the best tradition, as LSE tradition will, as I suggested earlier, have um, be able to have a lively discussion uh, now. There were so many thoughts you floated that certainly I'd wish to come back on, but I will exercise an even lighter touch than usual as a moderator for now and open things to the floor. Um, if, please, um, you could say uh, who you are, uh, put your hand up, say who you are, um, what institution or just you know, what your calling is or interest in life. Um, and wait for the microphone to be brought to you. That would be great. And as like all moderators, I will say, please, no speeches, keep it short and punchy, uh, and don't smuggle in the second question, um, unless it's um, at least without my consent. Um, okay, uh, there, there are somebody. Um, would you like to take them individually, or in clusters, yeah. of, or clusters of three, or? Um, uh, oh, like gee, uh, uh, it doesn't uh, whatever, whatever it doesn't the, really the, the customer of the country is. is. If I'm sure. fashionable, take them clusters of three. I'm not always yeah. persuaded the of the merits. Enables the speaker sometimes it, to, to get step, off the hook, doesn't size, it? Yeah. Side <laughs> yeah. Step on the okay, so clusters of three then. Hello. I thoroughly enjoyed your, your lecture. Thank you very much. My name is Alexander Durst. I'm a student of international relations here at the LSE. Thank um, you. you mentioned the fact that you didn't see what the emergency was, what, you know, um, for Europeans, you know, that you, you basically questioned the fact that there was an urgency in Europe. Yeah. And that would induce Europeans to accept the kind of affirmative action that happened in America. But what do you make of um, the you know, terrifying riots that happened in France you know, a, a couple of months ago? Um, or you know, the kind of scandals, um, you know, the fact, for instance, that quite a few um, terrorists you know, in the 9-11 right. attacks were actually of British origin, etc. Doesn't that indicate that there is uh, the kind of crisis that would induce Europeans to change their, their attitudes and policies? Well, I think that's an emergency of public order. Um, it, it's violence. All, all, all countries have violence. All countries have um, protests by have-nots. All countries have have-nots. Um, uh, I don't know that that requires the constitutional uh, change of the constitutional understanding of 
of freedom of association or the replacement of, of uh, individual rights by group rights. Since I think you might be a German speaker, there's a, um, there's a you're not, no, I'm sorry, um, sorry. Um, uh, there's a great book by a German uh, uh, jurist, as they call him, a member of the Supreme Court, called Udo de Fabio, which is a, uh, called The Culture of Freedom. It's got a fascinating treatment of the re replacement of individual rights by group rights. But just to, to finish my thought, uh, I, I distinguish between a, an emergency of public order and a constitutional emergency. Uh, the American race problem was uh, a situation that sort of was doing standing violence to the American Constitution and had been doing so for hundreds of years. And um, uh, there had never been a year in the history of the American Republic when it was not perceived as a a you know a catastrophic shame a, a sort of uh, a repudiation of the entire American project and I think that after the Second World War with the lessons it brought and then with the uh, uh, development of the mass media which which conveyed more exactly to Northern and Western Americans what was going on in the South it was a situation that that could not be tolerated. It was an emergency in that sense. It was a, an, uh, uh, so I, I don't know, I do not think that, 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 uh, that uh, riots and, and terrorism constitute the same kind of emergency. Thank you. Over to this side of the room, who'd like to ask a question? Uh, the lady in pink jumper, yes. Um, Tendai Bloom from Queen Mary. Um, I was just wondering what you're what you're advocating then. Nothing. Nothing. I, I, I really I, 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 I must say I. This is a, a book of analysis rather than um, of of preaching. It is not it is not a polemic. I, I think that there's a. Um, I mean, if you read the the book, you'll get a pretty clear idea of where I'm coming from and and uh, you know sort of what my let's say opinions and my my political leanings are but but as far as explicitly saying Europe should do this or do that I have I, I really have no opinion on it it's not my country and uh, um, you know I could tell you some best practices from the the United States but I'm not sure that those would really apply to Europe thank you okay um, come back here. gentlemen there Hello, my name is Alex Ratzener. I'm uh, an Austrian citizen who spent the last 10 years in uh, Amsterdam. Ah. And uh, I do have a question with regard to your analysis, which is you mentioned that, that the issue that Europeans have to cope with is an issue of diversity. My experience of what people in Holland found difficult, people like Pimfertown as well, was that in the second generation of the immigrants, mainly from Morocco, uh, one was moving from uh, a different experience that people had of immigration leading to diversity, then leading to integration, to a kind of more unified ideology 
that was different from the ideology of integration and, and diversity within, within the country. So the, 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 the question that I have is, I mean, you were talking a lot about immigration, the challenge is one of diversity. Uh, the way that I felt it, that people felt it in the Netherlands was that it was the challenge of more of a new uniformity suddenly coming in and questioning the values of, of, of that, that had been there for women, for, uh, uh, for other uh, things. And, uh, and it wasn't the diversity that was considered the problem. The new Do uniformity you... coming from? Hmm? Yeah. Com the new un uniformity coming from where? From, uh, the, from a kind of, for, for the, the concern, the fear of a kind of Islamist type of ideology coming, ah. coming in and demanding changes in the Dutch society, i.e. Yeah. Uh, all swimming pools should have uh, uh, divided hours for men and women. All schools should not have duties for girls to learn how to swim mm -hmm. when everybody in Holland had to learn how mm -hmm. to swim, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, examples yeah. like that. Well, this is, I, I, yes, this is an example of um, uh, what I'm talking about when I say that, uh, that being a country of immigrants means consenting to see your country change. And I, um, the, there are questions of, of how that, there are questions of how that could be done, and I think these are questions of scale. They're questions of, of big and little, and they come up whenever people like uh, 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 like Rowan uh, uh, like like Rowan Williamson uh, Rowan Williams discusses uh, uh, Sharia, imposition of Sharia, and things like that. There are certain things that you know, if you forced uh, every city in France. Um, to have uh, to have segregated swimming hours for for men and women that would obviously be an outrage and it would obviously be a it would be a capitulation of the majority society to the to the to the loud um, voice of these uh, of, of these people who want a sort of theocratic Muslim law. However, um, if you're in a local um, um, if you're in a local town which has a local city authority and you have a decentralized government, it might just be answered, you know, if you had a town of 5,000 people that's 80% Muslim and people vote for it, well, that, 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 that might be um, uh, perfectly fine under circumstances of subsidiarity. I, it has to do with the sort of constitutional order you have. I mean, in fr France was maybe a bad example to pick because uh, I, I've just finished talking about um, citoyenneté and the, and the tradition that all French people are supposed to be alike in every particular. So local laws don't work well there. In the United States, demands of this sort are generally decided uh, by what the people at the local level um, want, you know? So, um, I, I, I mean, not to dwell too long on your question, but I, th I think it's interesting that it was the Dutch Minister um, Pete Hein Donner, you might remember from about five years ago, who said, you know, if, um, uh, if, if a majority of Dutch people voted for Sharia, we would have it. And uh, he said, that's, that's democracy. And he's right. It's not liberalism, but it's democracy. So, Chris, if I, if I may, just you mentioned France again there, um, and um, you cited an example 
an ostensible example anyway of affirmative action when you mentioned Sciences Po. Um, and um, it's very interesting. If you look at, um, in fact, the difficulties which the French government has actually tried, this government has tried to be quite pioneering and saying, well, the beginning of wisdom, well, if we, our starting point is that there are particular socioeconomic problems which seem to be afflicting certain parts of the country in which immigrants are, are, are concentrated. But if we're to start to devise public policy solutions to make some impression on this problem, the beginning of wisdom would be uh, to uh, waive for the time being our official colorblind uh, policy uh, and, and actually start gathering information, census information on the ethnicity of particular groups of, uh, of, of the population. Uh, and it looked as though that was actually going to go through, but a lot of the left in particular threw up its hands in horror and say that this is all, uh, this is all fascistic and that we've been there, done that, we don't want to ever go down that road again and so on. Um, it sounds as though the government's going to stick to its grounds and I've just, when I was in France, in fact, just, just yesterday again, it seems that the government may well begin to backtrack on that. So, so much for not even getting to, let alone full-scale affirmative action, it's not even getting to base one. And you mentioned the particular Sciences Po, uh, the Sciences Po project. I run from, I'm the LSE program director of the double, double master's degree with Sciences Po. Um, and um, I was uh, very keen to meet, as uh, this was about a year ago, I was told, uh, asked would I meet with a group of students from Sciences Po who've come in on this, uh, the special flight path you've mentioned for kids from the banlieue um, to actually be, be, you know, uh, be given this fantastic opportunity. And, and I said, yes, of course, um, and I was looking forward to meeting them. And I was fully expecting to meet at least that some of them would be from ethnic minorities. Well, they were indeed from all poor parts of the banlieue, but they were all white French, um, and, uh, uh, which was quite an eye-opener and which suggests to me again that there is a, at, the, at the very least a nervousness or reticence about picking out a group of, of, of um, let's say, of, of Arab-origin French uh, citizens to give them that helping hand up and if you, like the, if you like the line of least resistance was followed they were all white working class French uh, so um, you know uh, and uh, we've been beguiled by this, by, by this idea that, you know, that France the most Jacobin uh, of, of countries and colorblind of countries is going down this route even France isn't and I mean cases of affirmative action still seem to be broadly speaking in Europe very few and far between um, and um, so, uh, but having said that, clearly we are revising or reviewing different countries are reviewing their, their models of multiculturalism and integration. We, the British and the Dutch, going one way, saying maybe we've gone too far down the multicultural road, and we need to think more a bit about building solidarity in some sense of cohesion. Right. And then the French, the French are uh, very flirting at the margins with maybe lightening up their very secularist Jacobin model. So you think there's a, and, a convergence of well, I, know, I mean, I think. The, 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 there is a, some sort of sense that there's probably a via media which, which actually does foster a sense of allegiance towards the, the, host, the host or the member nation state whilst actually not just tolerating but actually cultivating and regarding diversity as a valuable thing and I just think the sense is across so many European countries that they just, we have not got that balance right but we're all coming to it in different ways but I don't see affirmative action playing any role in that as far as I can see Sorry, uh, uh, yes, in the sort of khaki green chair. I was, I'm so sorry, it's coming. Thank you. Um, hi, I, from the title it sounded, uh, sorry, my name is Craig Willie. I'm studying uh, international history uh, at LSE. Um, from the title, I assumed that um, this was going to be a doom book, as you were saying in the introduction, because uh -huh. Burke was, you know, 
to see the least very uh, negative about the French yeah. Revolution and its consequences. Right. Um, so I wasn't sure if this was going to be uh, sort of a Mark Stein or uh, Melanie Phillips, Londonistan kind yeah. of book, but it, I don't agree with everything you've said, but it's, uh, I appreciate um, the need to, to have discussion. And I think the thing I agree with most in what you said was the idea that, Amer that Europe is being Americanized by this. Because, and I think the French example is the best, because in America they have almost, well, ever since they have had censuses, they've been tracking uh, racial groups and ethnic backgrounds. And you're seeing this in Europe. And you are seeing, um, I don't want to, uh, you're seeing communities. Neighbor this neighborhood is this kind of neighborhood, ethnic neighborhood. This neighborhood is Jewish. This neighborhood is Irish. And in Europe, you're seeing similar patterns. What I, and you're, and you're seeing problems of race relations, um, I think in many cases comparable to what you see with African Americans uh, in Europe. Yeah. Um, but the part I disagree with is maybe the overemphasis on religion, because I don't think that is really the core of the issue. I think that there is an assumption that because um, second generation Muslims will self-identify more as Muslims than maybe their parents do, that this is a sign that they're becoming more religious. And uh, despite my accent, I've been living a long time in both France and the UK. Um, and I think young people uh, of ethnic minority background, whether Muslim, black in France or the UK, most uh, are uh, they're very normal, very normal. That is my, uh, that is my assessment, I think that they, you know, they, what, what, who, who are their idols? You know, it's, it's you know, the R&B and rap, you know, yeah, this yeah. is not, yeah, yeah. this is not Sharia law, this is probably the yeah. opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and, and I'm not saying there are no, none of them are religious, but I'm saying I think that tends to get overstated. And I think the, and I think the, the example of the UK is helpful because, uh, because um, you see similar, similar race relations problems whether it's Muslim minority, or the Hindu minority, or the black minority. And that yeah. black minority is Caribbean and African, and they've got divergent issues. So, I just, so my question would be, after I've spoken a, yeah. uh, a little while, do you think religion is as important, or do you think it is just um, a kind of Americanization because Europe is learning about race relations, which is something which is relatively new in its history, notwithstanding some small black and other communities uh, around Europe, uh, historical black and other communities, rather than really an issue about religion, because this gives it these overtones. Yeah. Um, right, right, I, I, I know. I, um, that's a fantastic question. It's, it goes in about five different directions. Tell me if there's a corner of it that I miss. I, 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 I want to stress that, that the, th the remarks I made about religion, I made only, um, uh, they, they were sort of prefatory to the, the remarks I was going to make about the hidden costs of Im immigration, just because I think that when you mention uh, the remarks I made about religion had more to do with the doom aspects that you brought up than they did with the hidden costs aspect. But I think actually that um, religion is part of the Americanization. Why is the United States, um, which is just as advanced as these European countries and roughly on a par um, uh, uh, in terms of per capita income and has the same configuration of mass media and the same kind of um, uh, same, same, same kind of um, uh, political system? Why is it so much more religious? Um, I would say that it has something to do with the sort of commitment to change and flux and um, um, uh, 
you know the the famous English um, the famous English allergy to religious zeal has something to do with um, uh, you know the, the 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 village manse always being in the same place that it was for the last thousand years, but where you, when you're in the United United States and you're you know a large part of the population is living in towns that were built in you know that that, that were desert in 2003, um, it's I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the most religious parts of the country are the most um, uh, transient parts of the country. Um, so I do actually think that that um, that over the medium term, openness to the world will will create a um, uh, will create more religiosity. Will tend to create religiosity, more religiosity in Europe among all among all faiths. Um, maybe it won't become as religious as the United States. But if, if I, I to, at, at the risk of going a little bit off of my subject, I, I, I was reading an interesting older paper by the Harvard economist um, uh, Danny Roderick, um, who writes a lot about globalization. And he came to the conclusion that um, uh, it's a study a few years old, but he came to the conclusion that larger governments are associated with more open economies. And it strikes me that, um, that people you know, will create structures of order the more open to the disorder of the world or the, the randomness of the world or the haphazardness of the world they are. And that, that I do think religion is, is one of those. But am I, am I, is there a heart of your question that I was missing? Um, Well, you know, there are um, the on on this kind of question. I, I in my book, I, I had I've had to rely mostly on on academic um, sociologists and people who do studies like that. And I, I think that the, the Muslim cultures do show certain um, uh, divergences um, um, on questions of. You know, what do you, um, where is your allegiance to your religion or to your country? You know, they rate high on religion. On, on questions of, um, of demography, okay, you find that, that um, uh, uh, descendants of Pakistanis and of Bangladeshis sort of converge on the national birth rate more slowly than, say, the de 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 uh, descendants of African Indians. Now, obviously, it's an open question um, whether this is due to religion or whether it's due to sort of some regional, cultural, or economic uh, factor. Um, I don't know, but uh, I, I didn't go that deep into it. Okay. Okay. Try and find time for another two, two or three questions. Um, gentleman in the striped shirt.
Yes, hello. Uh, my name's Argyros and I'm of Greek descent and I've been in this country for quite considerable time. That's quite apparent. So the question I'm going to ask you is this, that you touched um, fairly briefly on the question of gender and that to me is the critical factor because you seem to support um, Islam very strongly. Now then, let's go back to what you referred to in Holland, Pimfortein. Now Pimfortein, as you well know, was killed by a fanatical Muslim uh, thug, if you like, well, okay? Uh, well, he was killed by an animal rights activist uh, who, did, who did allude to, he did allude to Fortown's um, uh, uh, atti uh, attitudes towards Muslims, but he was actually killed by an animal rights activist. Big pardon. His name was Volkert uh, van der Ha, I think was his name. Okay. Yeah, but, but, so, but, but, but go on, that's all right. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 but the, the thing that strikes me is, is the gender factor, which is, to me, the most important, which is that women in the Islamic countries that I have been to, and I've been to many of them, don't have anywhere near the rights and the equalities that women have in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would like to hear your opinion on that fact, because to me, it is the critical one. Here, for example, when I was living in the Docklands area of London, I used to see women dressed in the full chador with young uh, girls around about the age of six, seven perhaps, dressed exactly the same. Yeah. And yeah. quite frankly, I don't want to see that here in Europe. Yeah, all right. Well, you know, in a way, um, in, in a way, um, I'm totally delighted to, to hear your opinion because I have made the assertion in the book that I, I think is a rather controversial one, that it is feminism that is maybe the most divisive point between Europeans and Muslim immigrants. I'm surprised to, 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 to hear you say you think that I'm, um, uh, I'm a big partisan of the, of the hardline Islamic uh, uh, view on this. No, no, okay, okay, all right. Um, uh, you know, I think it all depends. I have to say that I think these questions all depend on what kind of constitution you have. And um, I, I hope that I didn't sound too dismissive of the question that the, that the uh, young woman over by the pillar in the pink asked me earlier when she said, what do you support? But I'm not trying to be cute or coy. Um, but I can see, you know, so I can see France banning the veil in schools because France has a long tradition of uniformization of the national culture. In the American tradition, and I would say also in the British tradition, the idea of saying that a woman can't wear a scarf to school, you better have a really good reason for it. You know, and, and, and the, there's, a, there's a presumption um, in laws against the veil that the women are sort of being coerced into, into doing it. And that, in fact, this was the idea of the Stasi Commission in France. The Stasi Commission was the commission that came up with the idea of banning the veil. 
Their basic assumption was that these girls who are going to school, they, except for a few mischief makers, okay, they don't really want to be wearing the veil. They're being forced to uh, by their parents. Um, so we're actually liberating them. Um, now, in America, this is a very contentious um, issue. In America, it, it's, it's considered a, not a liberation, but the opposite to try and remove the role of the, of the parents. Um, I think this really depends on what kind of um, constitution you live under. Now, I, as, far as, the, as far as the full body covering, I mean, I don't, I, I must confess, I don't, uh, you know, I, it makes me uneasy to see it too. And I go to, I've been to places like um, uh, Sweden, in, like in Malmö, in, in, in a housing project called Rosengård. And, in the, and the women there are, are, are um, they're mostly Anatolian, I think, with some Iraqis. That is, they don't, they don't, they're not Saudis, uh, they don't come from cultures where, where it's traditional to, to wear that sort of thing. So in their case, it seems like some sort of um, statement of separation that they're making as, you know, it's, it's a, they want to mark themselves off as separate. I don't know, you know, uh, I don't know quite how to arrange this within a, within a system of, um, uh, of, of, of constitutional rights, except that I think that each country um, ought to arrange it according to the logic of its own constitution. Does that, you look unsatisfied with that. Uh huh. And, 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 and she, she was tell you, Ayan Hirsi Ali is one of the women I most admire in the world. And uh, I've met her, I've, I've written about her, and I think she's a, 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 a brave, courageous woman. And um, uh, however, she is also um, a, a hardline feminist um, and a, um, an outspoken atheist. And the, 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 the ideal life that she um, describes is not going to be the ideal life for all for all for all women, and I and, and I think that in in, in an American um, in an American uh, context, the, the 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 women who want to live a more traditional right a life also have a right to that too. I, I do, do, do you know what I'm saying? But she went to America. Yeah, I know she, she went to America. America. That's what, you bet. They want her to stand up and say the things that she. Um, no, she is welcome to stand up and, and say the things she's saying in Holland, you know. But I, I but um, she's free to say the things she's saying in Holland. Yes. Okay, yeah. I'd, I'd like to get uh, get in two more questions if uh, if possible. Um, um, over there, please. Yes, thank you. I have a very little. My name is Saraf. I'm I'm doing my master here at the at the European Institute. I have a very little question. If I understood it right, that you said um, you said that assimilation and um, like integration 
leads to more um, immigration. Uh-huh. So, because uh, what, what we learn here is that it's a good thing in, in the European uh-huh. Union if you uh-huh. integrate the, the right. immigrants. Yeah. So, um, do you see that then as a, as a good thing that, we, that the European Union integrates them um, and they assimilate? Or yeah. is that then. Well, that yeah, that's, no, that's a great, a great, great question. And this is, um, you know, this is something dealt with in a part of my book that I don't touch on. Any society has got to have. Uh, sort of coherence and loyalty, and I would say the undivided loyalty of its um, of its uh, of its members. Yes, they must. Um, uh, I, I think that people must integrate. But um, could I ask? Are you are you Turkish? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because I, I I think the Turkish the Turkish immigration in Europe is really I, I think one of the most interesting and and and. Um, in, in, in Germany, I think that the uh, among immigrations from Muslim countries, um, the Turkish immigration has probably been the most successful in terms of. Um, I mean, if you leave aside, you know, Arab oil sheikhs living in London who had lots of money when they came, etc. But I, I mean, the Turkish immigration has probably been the most successful in terms of um, in terms of uh, economic results and in terms of um, uh, having fewer social problems. Although, you know, obviously there are issues with people from Eastern Anatolia and blah, blah, blah. However, I would say it's been the least successful in terms of integration, you know? So uh, the, the, the Turkish have followed what we in the, um, in, in the United States um, would call um, the Chinese model. And one of the most interesting things in, in American scholarship on, um, uh, uh, on, on immigration is there's a, there's a Chinese-American uh, immigrant sociologist named Zhao Min who argues that the Chinese are more successful because they're not integrating, you know, because they have, they live with, they, 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 they're, they're closer to their families and they're further away from video games and, um, you know, the mall and fashions and, and other things. And, and then they go off to college and they become normal Americans there, you know, having failed to develop the bad habits before. So, I know that's going beyond what your question asked. Yes, I think integration is essential, um, at least from my point of view. Um, but there are some interesting um, paradoxes about it. Okay, we could have one more question. Uh, I did have someone who hasn't asked a question before. The lady in white jacket, yes. Yes, my name is Tara Healy Singh. Do you think it would be appropriate for immigrant, uh, immigrants who come to Europe uh, to have to go through a screening process before being awarded citizenship and citizenship rights to make sure that their value system is compatible with the host community? Um, it, it depends on what you mean by value system. I will go back to my um, same weaselly answer as before, which is to say I don't want to give lessons uh, to Europeans. However, I'll tell you what I think as an American. I, I tend to be, um, um, in, as far as my own country is concerned, um, I think that you need to have a pretty unambiguous loyalty towards your country and that there, there can be... Um, uh, you, you, you know, I can see the, the case for, say, dual citizenship in the case of marriages between citizens of two countries. But eventually there has to come a point to choose. Um, 
so as far as the value of, of, of love of country, yeah, I think that that has to be unambiguous before you get in. If you're talking about more um, social values, um, the interesting case of the, um, the Nar Nederland video that, that, that the Dutch uh, came up with a couple of years ago, just to make sure that um, immigrants were, were compatible. Um, th this goes to one of the things you're talking about. The Dutch, um, you know, they, um, uh, they, 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 I'm not sure, I believe this was actually in the works at the time when Theo van Gogh was killed in 2004. But they had a, um, they, they made a video to show to immigrants, uh, and the video basically said, um, come to the Netherlands, we have euthanasia here. Here's a picture of two men kissing. Here are some naked women on the beach, okay? You like it? You want to come? You know? And, and, and so it, it, that I find, now, now, now that I find a little bit, uh, I, I find that a little bit bullying. Um, uh, although I can see, I can see in the abstract that you would want, that you would want um, people to share your values. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, I think that takes it a bit far. Hmm? Why? Because I, I think there's nothing there's nothing illegitimate for it. Yeah. 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 I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, Yes, I understand if you explain to people that it's a kind of um, that it's a kind of a pluralistic society, but I don't I, 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 sent an, I sense an anti-religious agenda behind it. I sense that, that it, um, it says that there's something illegitimate about objecting to um, a, a woman bearing her breasts or something. I think that you and I might agree on, I, I think that you and I probably agree on the question of individual rights and the plurality of lifestyles. That it's okay, you know, that if, if people uh, swim naked on, on, on certain beaches, um, as, as long as they're private beaches, I would say, as an American. You, you might take a more liberal view as a Dutchman, huh? But, uh, but what, I think what we're disagreeing over is the film. I, I, I object to sort of um, rubbing people's uh, noses in it. Yeah, yeah, all right, okay, all right. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'm just being a, an American prude, basically, yeah? Okay. 
Great. Well, sadly, we have to draw things to a close. Uh, Christopher, we've had a tremendous hour and 20 minutes, really stimulating uh, and uh, lively questions. Thank you to the questioners as well. Um, um, I hope you will come back soon. I hope that, um, um, that some of you will avail of yourselves of the opportunity to go and at least peruse and perhaps purchase um, uh, Christopher's book, which is on sale outside, and which he'd be very happy to sign. So thank you very much, and above all, thank you, Christopher. Thank you.